Well, don't tell anybody this, but I am currently addicted to an absolutely mindless and violent television show. It's called The Blacklist and is on Netflix. Uh, Blacklist stars James Spader as Raymond Reddington, a mysterious criminal mastermind who works with the FBI to capture other mysterious criminal masterminds. One of the most interesting characters on this show, though, is Dembe, Reddington's uh, devoted manservant and security guard. Dembe is himself a mysterious figure, but his devotion to and friendship to Reddington with Reddington is unmatched. Dembe is capable, handles any assignment given. Dembe is loyal, never leaving Reddington's side. Dembe is Reddington's moral compass. He is willing to sacrifice his life for Raymond, but Dembe is also, like I said, mysterious. He's kind of quiet, now hides in the background of scenes. We really don't know what secrets he has or what secrets he and Reddington shares. I thought of Dembe as I was reading the book of Isaiah this week. It's amazing what goes through your mind when you're studying the Bible sometimes. We've been studying Isaiah for the past 10 months. And Isaiah tells the story of God's people, Judah, before and during their captivity in uh, Babylon. Judah, as you probably know, had been called by God to be his his special holy people, a, a light to the nations. For the most part, Judah was anything but that. God warned them. They didn't listen, so God let them know through the prophet Isaiah that he was going to destroy them or let, let their enemies destroy them uh, as a punishment. And we see that play out in Scripture as the nation of Babylon comes and destroys Jerusalem and destroys the temple and carries off the people of Judah to captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Isaiah isn't all doom and gloom, though. The prophet predicts good things to come for Judah following their captivity. He prophesies their freedom from Babylon. He prophesies their return to Jerusalem. And he also prophesies the arrival of a king, a messiah, to restore their nation. And that's what we're looking at in this final mini-series of Isaiah called The Future King. We're looking at the prophecies of the arrival of the messiah in the book. But this Messiah, this king, isn't necessarily prophesied so much to be a king. He's actually called something else. He's called the servant. And he's one of the more interesting characters in the book of Isaiah. The servant in Isaiah is actually much like Dembe. He's competent like Dembe. He's loyal like Dembe. He's willing to risk his own life for the job like Dembe. He's a man of righteousness like Dembe. And he's mysterious. We actually don't know much about this servant, who he is, where he comes from. He has his own secrets, like Dembe. The servant to come is such an interesting character that we're actually going to focus in on him for the remaining three weeks of our study. And we're going to start by looking at one of the first times we meet this servant in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 7. Let me go ahead and read it to you, after which we will discuss it. Isaiah 42, 1 through 7. Here is my servant, whom I am uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, 
who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you my servant in righteousness. I will take hold of your your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. You, my servant, will open eyes that are blind, free captives from prison, and release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Now let me give you some context to this passage. Hopefully by now you know the overall story of Isaiah, that the prophet predicts Judah's captivity in Babylon, but also their, their release and their return to Jerusalem. And the people of Judah return to Jerusalem after 70 years in captivity And when they return to Jerusalem, they expect that God will restore them to their days of glory, but that doesn't seem to happen. When Judah returns to Jerusalem, they still have problems. They still have enemies, new, worse enemies than Babylon. This leaves the people of Judah confused. They wonder what went wrong. They thought God was going to restore them to glory. And through the prophet, Yahweh, their God, tells them that he does have plans to restore them. But in a way different from what they expect. He's going to deliver them from their enemies. He's going to deliver them from more than their enemies. From their, the enemies within. From sin, from guilt, from death. And he's going to do so by way of a certain individual. A savior that the prophet Isaiah calls the servant of the Lord. In the closing chapters of Isaiah, we get to know this servant. We meet him here in chapter 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, the prophet writes. The servant also shows up in other places in Isaiah. It shows up in chapter 49. The servant shows up in chapter 50, chapter 52, chapter 53. The servant is a very popular figure in the closing chapters of Isaiah, which is why we're going to spend the final few weeks of our series focusing in on the servant. And according to Isaiah, the servant's role will be to rescue God's people once and for all from their oppression. God sees their ongoing suffering, but he has a plan. He's going to send them his dembe, his servant, to rescue them once and for all. There will no longer be any temporary rescues. When dembe comes, Israel will be rescued forever. But it will happen in a different sort of way. Not through conquering, but through service. Not through conquest, but through sacrifice. Now, there is an incredible amount of debate among Bible scholars about who exactly the Lord's servant is. I mean, the servant is never really named. We have some clues in the text of Isaiah about his identity, uh, but he's never really named. God just calls him my servant. Now, this hasn't stopped people from trying to figure out his identity, though. Of course, you can can imagine, uh, you can probably imagine who Christians believe the servant to be. Who do you think Christians believe the servant to be? Say it with a little bit more authority, people. (laughs) Thank you. Jesus. Yes. Uh, By the way, that's always a safe answer in church. Is it Jesus, Pastor? Yes. Although one of these days is like not going to be Jesus and you're just going to be embarrassed. No, it's not Jesus. That's ridiculous. And to be sure, the authors of the New Testament uh, understand the servant to be Jesus too. In the Gospel of Matthew, for example, Matthew makes this connection very, very clear. Uh, Matthew writes in chapter 12, for example, uh, Jesus did this to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. 
Here is my servant who I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. So Matthew, when Jesus, when Matthew sees Jesus do something, Matthew says, ah, this was to fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah 42. So it's Jesus. Or is it? It's not necessarily that simple. But we like to give the other side the chance to speak here at Rooftop so that we can, you know, be objective and be intellectually honest with ourselves. And many Jews say that the suffering servant of Isaiah is not Jesus and cannot be Jesus. There are a lot of prophetic comparisons between Jesus and the servant. Some line up really well and some don't line up as well. For example, the servant passages offer a lot of tidbits that sound like Jesus. In chapter 53, for example, another servant passage, the prophet writes this, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering. That sounds like Jesus, but that sounds like a lot of people. That sounds like Dr. Anthony Fauci right now. (laughs) (laughs) Of the servant, Isaiah also writes in chapter 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was uh, crushed for our iniquities. That sounds like Jesus. If you know the story of Jesus, he was pierced on the cross by a Roman spear. Christians make a a lot of that comparison. But he wasn't really crushed. So we'll just leave that detail out. Pierced, but not crushed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth from chapter 53. Jesus was oppressed, Jesus was afflicted, but he actually did open his mouth to say a lot of important things on his way to death. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Not as far as we know, he's actually buried in the tomb of a rich man. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. Wait. Jesus didn't have any offspring, at least not literal offspring. So so Jewish people actually reject the idea that Jesus came fulfilling every prophetic detail, the servant of the Lord. They accuse Christians of making connections that don't deserve to be made and ignoring things that don't line up. Uh, Philosophically, this is called the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever heard about the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. Uh, Nothing, by the way, against the good people of Texas. Some of my best friends are from Texas. (laughs) But the Texas sharpshooter fallacy is a logical fallacy that we sometimes make, especially when talking about prophecy. Imagine a Texas gunman, if you will, shooting at the side of a barn, just randomly, and then drawing targets around the bullet holes, saying that that was the target he intended to hit. It's a fallacy we all commit. We're eager to view evidence in the way we want to. So we draw targets around the hits... And we ignore the misses. People might say, you know, well, what about those other details in Isaiah? What about those bullet holes? And we say, well, that wasn't, those don't matter. I was aiming over here. And that's what Jews say we're doing when we call Jesus the Lord's servant. We draw targets around the hits. You know, he was pierced for our transgressions, but we ignore the misses. He was crushed for our iniquities. He will see his offspring. We just kind of ignore those ones. So then who do Jews say the servant is? Well, there are alternative theories that they would suggest. Maybe the servant is a future Messiah who has yet to come yet. Maybe the servant is King Cyrus of Persia. King Cyrus of Persia is actually the big king who released the Jews from uh, Babylon and sent them back to Jerusalem. Maybe that's the servant. Maybe the servant of the Lord is actually the nation of Israel itself. And it's sort of a metaphor for the nation of Israel. Or maybe the servant is the prophet Isaiah himself. All those theories are problematic, though, for lots of reasons. I mean, if the connection between Jesus and the servant of the Lord is imperfect, 
it's far less perfect than with any of those other alternatives. Honestly, objectively, the most likely possibility is that the servant in Isaiah is the prophesied Jewish Messiah who came in the person of... It's a little bit better. (laughs) You see, the overall trajectory of Jesus' life and ministry lines up pretty closely with the life and times of the servant described in Isaiah. Isaiah says that the servant will suffer and die for the sins of God's people, which is a really interesting thing for a Messiah to do, by the way. Uh, If the details don't fit perfectly, maybe that's because we're not seeing them the right way, or, or because the poet, Isaiah, who was a poet, was casting a general impression in poetic form of who the Messiah was and he came to do. Jesus fills the general uh, sense of, what the, of how the servant is described here. In fact, we see this in the servant passage that I just read to you in chapter 42. While the servant isn't named, he is described in a way that sounds an awful lot like Jesus. And that's what I want to look at with you this morning. What do we learn about the Lord's servant in Isaiah 42? We learn a lot about Dembe from the blacklist. But what do we learn about the servant from Isaiah? Well, we learn a lot. We learn about the substance of the servant's ministry. We learn about the scope of the servant's activity. And we learn about the style of the servant's work. We learn about the substance, the scope, and the style of the servant. And as I describe these things to you, we're going to talk a little bit about what they mean for us. Because the same servant who came to save the people of Israel came to save us. And it's worth getting to know him, who he is, so that we can follow him well. So substance, scope, and style. Let's start with the first. We learn about the substance of what the servant came to do. By substance, I mean essence, purpose. What was the goal for the servant's arrival? Well, Isaiah tells us, Here is my servant, whom I am uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And as he says elsewhere, In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. So what is the substance of the servant's work on earth? What did he come to do? Somebody said it correctly, but really weakly. Be bold here. Bring, <laughs> she's little. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> the servant came to bring justice. That's what she was saying. Bring justice. And we've seen in the book of Isaiah that justice is a big deal for the prophet. He talks about it a lot. The Hebrew word for justice is the word mishpat, and it's also translated righteousness. So to bring mishpat to the earth means to restore fairness to the world and punish wrongdoing for the sake of righteousness. And sure enough, this is one of the things that Jesus was devoted to when he got to the earth, bringing justice to the earth. As he says in Luke 18, Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him, do it day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Jesus cared about justice. Now, how did God bring justice to the earth through Jesus? 
Well, what did Jesus do while here? He defended the poor who were being oppressed by the rich. He healed the blind and leprous who had gotten a raw deal in life. He lifted up children and women and ethnic and religious minorities who were being oppressed by the majority. As Isaiah says, I, the Lord, have called you, my servant, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. This prophecy, this verse, reminds me of a time in the Gospels when Jesus and his disciples were walking through a town and they walked past a man born blind. Maybe you know this story. It's in John chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples were walking past a man born blind. I don't know how they knew that he was born blind. Maybe they knew who he was. But as they walked by, maybe you know what the disciples asked Jesus. The disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, that's a really odd question to ask. Who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he was born blind? Back then, people really did believe that illness, sickness, blindness was the result of sin in your life. This man was a bit of a conundrum, though, because he had been born blind, so whose sin? He in his womb, his mother's womb, or his parents that he was born blind? That's their question. Who sinned? Jesus says, nobody sinned. Nobody sinned that this guy was born blind, neither his parents, nor he sinned. This is just unfair. This shouldn't have happened. It's, just un- it's not fair at all. People shouldn't be born blind. So what does Jesus do? Well... Having made his point, he walked on. No! (laughs) What does Jesus do? He heals the guy. Because that's why he came. To open the eyes of the blind. To bring justice to the earth. To right wrongs. Nobody deserves to be born blind or be blind. Nobody deserves to be born poor. Nobody deserves to be traumatized as a child. Nobody deserves to be raped or abused. Yes, we're all sinners, but not everything that happens to us is our fault. Jesus came to bring justice to the earth, to undo the wrongs that have happened to us. And he's still doing it, too. And he's not going to stop until it's completed. Here's what the prophet says. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. He's not going to stop. He's committed to it. He's doing it. How? Well, he's bringing justice to the earth through us. At least he wants to. He wants us to care about the things that he does. We should stand for justice. We should stand for the poor who aren't getting a fair shake in life. We should stand for the unborn whose lives are not safe in the womb. We should stand against racism in the world, the church, and our own hearts. We should stand for religious freedoms. We should care for the sick and homeless who did not ask to be sick or homeless. Whether we're on the right or whether we're on the left, we should stand for justice because Jesus did. We are the ones through whom the servant will bring justice to the earth. The substance of his ministry should be the substance of ours. That's the substance of the servant's work, to bring justice to the earth. We also learn from Isaiah 42 about the scope of the servant's work. By scope, I mean extent or breadth. The prophet Isaiah tells us what the scope of the servant's work is. It's the nations. 
As he says in verse 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles. Maybe you know what a Gentile is? Gentile is any non-Jewish person. It's actually a, a, a word that means nations. So a Gentile is any non-Jewish person from a non-Jewish nation, which includes everybody else. And that's the scope of the servant's work. He came to be a covenant for the people, for Israel, but also a light to the Gentiles, to the nations, uh, which, for the record, probably includes most of us. And another servant passage makes this point even more forcefully. In the servant passage in chapter 49, a little bit later, God says this. God says, it's just too small a thing. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. That's too small a thing. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I love that verse. God says to his servant, it's just too small a thing for me to send you to the Jews. That's easy, God says. Pshaw, God says. Anybody can go to their own people. Anybody can speak their own language. No, I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. That's my scope. In fact, I have no scope. My scope is limitless. I'm here for everybody. Are aliens coming to earth? I've heard rumors that they are. If so, great. They need to hear about Jesus too. Skylar talked about this a couple weeks ago. Not about aliens. (laughs) About Gentiles. Although, same thing, you could argue. God's plan has always been to choose Israel to bless the world by sharing the good news of God's salvation with everybody. That has always been his plan. But Israel resisted. Honestly, Israel still resists. Early on, Israel forgot about the scope of God's mission. God sent Jonah to preach the gospel to the Assyrians, and Jonah didn't want to go because he didn't like Assyrians. God sent Peter to go preach the gospel to a Roman centurion, and Peter didn't want to go because he didn't like Romans, he didn't like centurions, and he hated people who were both. But the scope of God's love has always been endless. My wife Michelle and I are uh, currently watching season two of The Chosen. Anybody know what The Chosen is? A little bit different than The Blacklist. It's about Jesus, and all you really need to know about The Chosen, as far as I'm concerned, is that it's the only Christian media I think I've seen recently that has been worth it. (laughs) Uh, Most Christian media is just seriously average, but The Chosen is very good. And the first episode of the second season is about Jesus breaking some social and ethnic barriers to share the good news of God's power with a group of people known as the Samaritans. And lots of his Jewish disciples don't like that he does this, And they have to have a come-to-Jesus moment with Jesus. (laughs) Imagine that. A literal come-to-Jesus moment with Jesus. How intimidating. Let's go have a come-to-Jesus moment with with me. He tells the disciples what God tells the servant. He says, it's just too small a thing to be here for the Jews. I mean, everybody needs saving. Everybody needs to hear the good news that God can save them from their sin and help raise them from the dead. This is what Jesus commanded his disciples to do. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, the peoples, everybody. This is one of the reasons why I believe in cross-cultural ministry. I mean, it's just kind of a small thing to build a church out of people like me. 
dorky, middle-aged white folks. That's too small for God, right? He has a bigger vision. Rooftop could be a church filled largely with dorky, middle-aged white folks. Or it could be bigger, not necessarily bigger in size, but bigger in scope, bigger in vision. Now, to be sure, God is certainly accomplishing that. The worldwide church of Christ is multi-ethnic, represents lots of people who look, sound, and think very differently from each other. When we go on mission trips and we meet Christians from around the world, it's a reminder of God's love for the nations. And I should also acknowledge that building a multicultural church is hard. It's hard to build a multicultural church with lots of people who look and think differently. You've got all sorts of things working against you. But I earnestly believe it's still important to try Churches on earth should look like the church in heaven. And the church in heaven is going to have lots of people from lots of walks of life. And even though that's hard, it's not entirely on us. It's on God if we let him do it. That's the servant's work. It's what God said the servant came to do. Now we can cooperate. We can reach across cultural barriers in our own lives to share God's love with people who are different than us. We can pray for our Bosnian and Muslim neighbors who here in Afton who worship a different God. We can offer to visit our elderly neighbors who feel forgotten and alone. We can be willing to have complicated conversations about race that don't always go very good and how we can overcome racial barriers to experience true fellowship with people who are different than us. We can brainstorm ways to make sure our ministry and building is accessible to people with disabilities. We can do that knowing God's love and power. We should. It's just too small a thing for Rooftop to be what it is in this respect. God has a bigger vision, a wider scope, and his servant came to make it a reality. On earth, as it is in heaven, we absolutely should be committed to the same. Here in Isaiah 42, we learn about the servant's substance, servant's scope. And finally... We learn about the servant's style. This guy has style, y'all. Servant did. Uh, as the prophet writes in verse 2, he writes this He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. One more time. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This is a fascinating verse. Especially when applied to the servant of the Lord. What does it mean? He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. What does that mean? Well, a bruised reed is a reed that is ready to bend and ready to break. When the servant arrives, he's going to arrive in such a manner that, he, that the reed won't fold. A candle wick that is barely lit won't even go out as he passes by. What the servant, what the prophet is describing here is a quiet and gentle and unobtrusive servant. One who sneaks in. One whom you're not even sure is there. He avoids reeds and walks so slowly that flames aren't disturbed. This is one of the things that Jesus' followers noted about him, right? He was gentle. He was humble. He was quiet. He was gracious. He frequently withdrew from crowds. He rode in on lowly donkeys. He was born in a stable for 30 years. He was like the son of a carpenter. Nobody knew who he was. 
When he healed people, this is what Jesus did when he healed people. He's like, hey, I'm going to heal you, but don't tell anybody. You can't tell anybody. To, to share the most important lessons uh, that he had, he like got his disciples off to a quiet place and he whispered his lessons to them. People marveled at his quiet style. But it did shock people. People didn't know what to do with it. They were confused by it. It flummoxed them. His followers kept expecting Jesus at any moment to strike out and destroy their enemies. They thought that that's what was needed. They thought that all the quiet stuff was like preparing them for like the loud stuff. And it makes sense. I mean, how are you going to become king unless you're willing to throw a few elbows? This is how we think too. How are you going to become king? How are you going to reach the president, the, the, the top? How are you going to become president or, or senator unless you're willing to cut down your opponent, show people who's in charge, fight dirty, run negative ads? Honestly, this is why we like some of our favorite leaders, some of our favorite politicians, because they fight for us. We think that's what we need. We need a fighter. Do we? Do we? Jesus was a fighter but a very different kind of one. He fought with gentleness on his right hand and love on his left. It's this kind of fight. I mean, his special identity is built into the very title used to describe him in Isaiah. What's he called in Isaiah? He's called the servant. He's not called the destroyer. He's not called the conqueror. He's called the servant. He knew that the world didn't need another violent politician. He was called the servant, and he lived it. I mean, one of those most revealing scenes in the ministry of Jesus was when he got on his knees to wash the dirty feet of his own disciples. That's what servants do. It shocked and surprised them. Some of the more militaristic-minded disciples said, what's happening now? Don't do that. Jesus said, no, this is exactly what needs to happen. It's how I'm going to change the world, by washing feet and dying on a cross. And here's the thing, disciples, it's how you're going to change the world too. That's why my favorite ex-president so far is uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, I'm not talking politics here. I don't know if I would have voted for the guy. I was two years old. (laughs) I'm talking other things. You see, when presidents uh, do do different, presidents do different things when when they retire, right? Some build their legacy. Some build their library. Some build their movement. Um, George W. Bush became a painter. I don't know if you knew that. It's actually pretty good. But Jimmy Carter decided to build houses for poor people with Habitat for Humanity. He and his wife have spent decades building houses through Habitat. Up until a few years ago, he was still even going out on job sites. He's a servant, doesn't scream or shout on social media, doesn't throw elbows, he just quietly does his work. Jimmy Carter doesn't even care if you know that he's alive. A lot of you probably thought that Jimmy Carter was dead. You might not even know who Jimmy Carter is. He doesn't care. He's just doing the the remainder of what is left for him to do on earth. That's how the servant came to change the world, by quietly serving. That's what he did on the cross when he quietly died for our sins. That's how he works in our lives too, right? Jesus works quietly, gently. He enters our lives so surreptitiously sometimes that we don't even know he's there. He's like Dembe in the back of the scene. Oh, Dembe's here. Just sneaking in. Now, why does he sneak in? Because he knows we're bruised reeds. He knows we're smoldering wicks. He knows we might break if he comes in too strong. So he just eases in without disturbing our wicks, our weeds, 
our reads. That's why a lot of us wonder where Jesus is in our lives and in our world. You know, we want, to, we want Jesus to do things. We want Jesus to say things. We want Jesus to, you know, make his presence known. I mean, but do we really? If Jesus was to show us his glory in all its fullness, we would die. If Jesus spoke, his voice would rip us to shreds. We're that vulnerable. Our God is fire, but our God is gentle. He knows we're hurting. He knows we're bruised. He knows we're burdened by the things that we've done. He knows we're confused. So he enters our lives quietly, hiding in the back like Dembe, so as not to break our reeds or snuff out our wicks. He bends over to wash our feet. He dies on the cross to forgive us our sins. He draws us forward and he whispers in our ears. He knows that's the kind of king we need, the quiet, gentle, servant king. That's how we're going to change the world, too. We're going to get further that way. The other day, for example, uh, one of my kiddos was having a bad day. I was getting constant updates via text from my wife, who was working at home that day, and the texts were growing increasingly alarmed. Grr, arg, OMG, get home soon. And I was getting mad, too. I was looking forward to coming home and letting my child have a piece of my mind. Enough is enough. This has got to stop. You know, parents, when you reach your limit. When I got home, though, I took one look at her little face. Burdened by adolescence. And I knew that a lecture and a rant would do nothing. In fact, it would do the opposite. It would break her reed. So I said, we're going on a walk. I don't want to go on a walk. We're going on a walk. And we went on a long daddy-daughter walk. She didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. It's the quietest walk. It's actually quite lovely. <laughs> <laughs> long, quiet walk. She walked like 10 feet in front of me. She didn't want to even see me. But I could tell over the course of this long, quiet daddy-daughter walk, she softened. We got home. She had a better night. She needed a lecture. She just needed to know that I was in the background of her scene, present, available. Maybe that's what the world needs. And we talk a lot about shouting here at Rooftop, right? Makes sense. What do you do from rooftops? You shout. But maybe we don't need to shout. Maybe we can get further by serving. Maybe we can get further by, by whispering. By quietly leaving groceries on the front step of our elderly neighbor's porch. Maybe we get further by, by not arguing with our loved ones about religion or politics. Because that usually goes well. And praying devotedly for them instead. Maybe we can get further in raising our children by being gentle with them. Maybe we can convict the world of sin, not by our judgments, angrily shared, but by the purity and holiness of our lives, quietly lived. Maybe the world's heard enough of our bluster. Maybe they don't need our gentleness. I don't know. Just wondering. Work for Jesus. So that's the servant, his substance, scope, style. Like I said, 
He's a mysterious and compelling character in Isaiah, more compelling even than Dembe, which is like, whoa. And you're right, his name is Jesus. Jesus. I like your confidence. He's not what the world expected of a Messiah. I mean, on a cross, death, washing feet, whoa. But he's what the world needs. He's what we need. He's what you need. He's what our friends and family and neighbors need. So let's go and show and tell the world about him, what he came to do, for whom and how. But let's do it. Please let's do it with all the gentleness, with all the quietness, with all the grace that a world filled with bruised reeds requires. Let's pray. Father, hopefully I've been faithful in telling my friends, brothers, and sisters about your son. How he is described in Isaiah. Who he is, what he came to do, and how. And what he cares about. He cares about justice. But that's what's crazy about this, this portrayal that we've, that we've read. He's, he's going to bring justice to the earth, but he's going to do it in a quiet way so as not to break any bruised reeds that's the beauty and the glory and the magnificence and the creativity of you, of your son you're going to bring justice to the earth through gentleness that's one of the reasons I follow you because you perplex and bewilder and fascinate me but that's not all, it's because you died for my sins on a cross, something that I wouldn't expect a bad man to do, let alone a perfect man. So I pray for us as a church that we can be committed to what you're committed to, to justice, to righteousness. Give us wisdom about what that looks like, how it can look in our lives, in our church, in our society, what we can do, what we shouldn't do, and help us do it the way that Jesus did, through quietness and gentleness. There will be a time for shouting. To be sure, your son Jesus told his disciples, what I have whispered in your ears, now shout. Go to the world, shout it from the rooftops. We're not giving up on shouting. But we want to be balanced. There's a lot of people in our lives who just need to see it, just need to feel it, just need to know that we're, we're walking beside them quietly. Just as you walk quietly in our own lives. You're always there. You might not be speaking, shouting, but you're there. Thank you for the opportunity to learn from your word this morning, to be your people. I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit.